Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to the Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. This is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing, whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days writing cosy crime or tabloid features about Prince Harry, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. Now, today's guest is the person behind the exquisitely cultured Londoner website, but she has also recently written a magnificent history of one of the most curious and daunting institutions in publishing, Vogue magazine. As a brand, Vogue holds an imperious position in fashion and certain exclusive sectors of society, yet it rarely permits light to penetrate to reveal whatever magic or chaos lies at its heart. So it's very much to my guest's credit that she's assembled such an illuminating history of this most unique and bizarre institution. Her book is called Glossy, and here to share her five rules of writing about Vogue is my guest, Nina Sophia Marais. Nina, welcome to the five rules of writing. Hi, thank you, Ed. That was a really fab introduction. Now, what made flashing. you? <laughs> <laughs> now, what made? But it's a fantastic book, and I absolutely uh, adored it. And um, uh, encourage uh, anybody who has the faintest, uh, you know, for whom Vogue holds the, the the faintest appeal to get hold of it, because it's a really deep and historical and gossipy um, uh, story of this, um, this magazine, but what made you decide that you were the person to do the unauthorized Vogue bio? Well, this was something that I had to do a lot of convincing in all sorts of departments. Um, you know, my agent, my publisher, (laughs) because I have sort of come out of nowhere. And I think even promoting the book, a lot of people's question is, who are you? And, you know, kind of why you, have you worked with so-and-so? Did you ever intern there? I think they really want me to be someone on the inside who had enough and has come out with a big tell-all. That's very popular, isn't it? But Mm -hmm. I never wanted to be that kind of writer. And I think, um, because Vogue still exists today and it has such a presence, you kind of expect the person writing about it to have to be part of it. But, you know, if you write about history, you're not there, are you? If you write about ancient Rome, you don't come from there. Um, we don't necessarily write about our culture or, you know, if we're men, we don't write about men. So Vogue is very much like that. The book is a huge history um, spanning, you know, a couple of centuries. And I don't think... You know, you had to be there to write about it. You just have to be willing to do the research, and Mm -hmm. I was. I mean, there is something um, a little bit intimidating about Vogue, isn't there? That sort of, you know, if you, you sort of prov- provoke it at your peril. And when I spoke to you for Strong Words, you mentioned how some other people who had had the temerity to write about Vogue in the past had been swiftly contacted by um, oh, yeah. uh, the legal profession. Has has your book caused them to make their displeasure unknown at all? Uh, Not in any obvious way. I know that they knew the book was coming out. I think that I knew I know that I had a bunch of interviews set up with a number of staff that all got cancelled at the same time. So I suspect there was some kind of internal veto. Mm. (laughs) Um, uh, Interviews are interesting anyway, because, you know, you won't necessarily get what you want out of the person. Um, 
but yeah so so they know of it I think they sort of figure that ignoring it would be the best way to go about it however on social media I have had some messages from people adjacent to Vogue making you know uh, sarcastic comments so I thought that was pretty interesting because they're sort of living up to that you know nasty um, reputation they have which seems not very cool or classy. <laughs> well, no, it's a, I mean, it's a, you know, to, so for anybody to be so sort of protective of themselves make you makes one, you know, suspect well, what is just what is it that they're afraid of? Um, exactly, exactly. Big deal. It's, you know, I mean, I understand for the people involved, it's a huge billion dollar business, blah, blah, blah. But if you can't have a laugh at yourself when you're just an employee, after all, these aren't the people who own the magazine making, you know, comments, then, um, then, well, it's kind of sad that your identity is just your job. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Okay, well, let's have a look at your five rules of writing about the, uh, you know, how you approach the um, great uh, fortress of uh, Vogue magazine. So your first rule is uh, kind, kind of uh, uh, sort of self-explanatory, really. You say, don't expect Vogue to help mm. get your detective hat on. Now, I suppose I should ask you really, you know, who your detective hat was made by and what fabrics they used. <laughs> what, what sort of detective work paid dividends on this project? So, uh, yeah, so archives are wonderful, uh, especially if you can find people who were involved um, and if they had other hobbies. So, for example, there was a business manager of Vogue in the 30s. He loved wine. So he wrote books about wine. But in writing about wine, you know, you can't just talk about wine. He talks about his life and a lot of other things filter through. So that kind of stuff, you know, it feels like you are possibly wasting your time. Um, but you have to nose it out, essentially, <laughs> and try and corroborate it elsewhere if you can. Um, I think also speaking to friends of people who were in Vogue can be really interesting, or family members. Um, so there was one uh, British editor who was there for, uh, from the 60s to the 80s, um, Beatrix Miller. She was incredible, and she died, sadly, quite a while ago. But I was recently speaking to... Um, Roy Strong, who was a really close friend of hers, her her nephew, you know, people like that who were very much part of the same club, but not on the masthead. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty valuable. Um, Yeah. And then you do have to kind of deep dive on the Internet. You follow every hyperlink, every blog, every kind of expired entry on Tumblr (laughs) and things do I mean, it is really interesting. It is like police work. Things kind of fall together and you get a story out of it and it's very satisfying. So it is worth doing as well. <laughs> and what were some of the most satisfying um, discoveries that you that lay at the end of these long investigative roads? Oh, um, let's see. How would I? Oh, I think some of the ones that I really enjoyed uh, in a sort of angry way were ones of nepotism. So people are connected to other people and on the face of it, you don't know how and you don't think they are. And then you dig and you dig and you dig and you dig and you realise that they're actually related in some really complicated way and have never spoken about it publicly, which is suspicious. Because if you work with someone you're related to, you'd be bound to say. And the fact that they don't makes it weird. Mm -hmm. Um, So stuff like that is quite interesting and, um, you know, 
Get your blood up. <laughs> I mean, it is. It does have this reputation of being phenomenally insiderish, doesn't it? And I know, obviously, they've they've in Britain certainly. You know, they've been made these changes over the last couple of years, which have tried to be more inclusive and more diverse. But it still um, has this reputation of being a, a tremendously sort of insiderish operation, doesn't it? Quite cliquey and exclusive. How do you how do you sort of penetrate those walls? Um, so one thing that I would say is that I don't think it's more inclusive and diverse at all. It is on the face of it and the fact that he chooses models who look slightly different from other models um, in history. But essentially, all he's done is follow the trend of the moment, which is exactly that. Um, he's doing what everybody is doing everywhere. And it's the first time in history we've accepted that he's not groundbreaking in the sense that he invented this and he's pushing the envelope. He's just responding to society. Um and in terms of getting insider knowledge, yeah, I mean, again, because so much of the book is history, you can literally get inside people's heads with letters and diaries. And um, in that sense, you get a real, you know, you really get under the skin of it. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of modern day, I would say, and I don't necessarily recommend this as a professional writing technique, but you have to kind of try and suss out the personalities, right? If you are this kind of person and, you know, some public figures we have a huge amount of information on and you can, you sort of have to try and make an educated guess the same as you do with historical figures mm -hmm. on how they might have been feeling or why they did things. Um, it's a little bit more awkward because they're alive and you obviously don't want to make some kind of vast sweeping statement, but it's about gathering the evidence, isn't it? Okay. And presumably you approached um, um, a number of people and asked for comments or an interview. What, what reaction did you get from them? Yes, I found, uh, that I gave up after a while um, because, so as I said, I had a number of things lined up and then they all kind of got cancelled. Um, there were people who didn't want to talk or were very, very paranoid about talking. There were some older editors that I got introduced to through someone who did speak to me and she was very supportive, but they were really on edge. Um, and in the end, I thought, you know, even if I do get an interview, chances are they're going to ask to take it back. And I didn't have that much time. Um, also, the comments people make. This is something really interesting about, you know, writing about people and things that have happened. Like you may be asking a question. Um, so what happened around this event in, I don't know, say 1970s or whatever. But people won't necessarily remember that anyway. They'll tell you what they remember, but it might be completely irrelevant to what you're saying. So a classic example. I really loved this. I thought it was brilliant. I asked Roy Strong because he was saying to me, oh, I knew her, her Anna Winter's father really well. And I said, what do you think of Anna Winter? And, you know, I'm expecting something about either her work or her personality. And he said, she's not very tall, is she? <laughs> so, you're, you know, um, no matter how you interview, people's recollections are still cloudy. Um, uh, yeah. And you have to navigate their personalities, too. So um, that's that's quite hard. Okay. Now, your second rule is that um, general knowledge will get you a long way. Read widely. And a giant research project like this, how do you know what to read? Well, for this, I, I can't say that I read necessarily specifically. I mean, I did read for this, but much more targeted. But what I what. So, okay, one of the key things about this book that I'm going to say straight away is that I have very, very little time to write it. Um, I wanted two years 
I ended up getting less than a year um, and I agreed because I'm a new writer and I was so keen and so eager and so desperate um, and of course now I realized that a project that was so big and maybe I didn't even understand how big it was I should have definitely um, you know given myself more time so one of the things that saved me in doing something under that kind of pressure was the fact that I did have a really good general knowledge about uh, history in general, but also fashion. So because you kind of have to relate a lot of the things that happen in Vogue to their time periods and the place it has in society of that moment. And if I hadn't known, for example, about gender roles, about wars, about um, women's rights, about, I don't know, um, you know, when designers were born and what kind of, when certain fabrics entered the market. If I didn't have that kind of general knowledge, uh, I would have spent, I would have never been able to write the book. I would have had to figure all of that out. Mm -hmm. and that would have been really difficult because even some kind of vague reference points uh, will help you a lot. If you know the basic facts about World War One, you can already have kind of a basis to work from. Um, it's really, really difficult if you don't understand history overall um yeah yeah i mean this this sort of distant past is uh i mean vogue does go back a long way doesn't it end of the 19th century and i think one of the strangest things about it and certainly its origins and possibly up to the second world war is that you know it was very much associated with high society people wasn't it people who lived according to their own rules this is a gr sort of social group who are you know to the rest of the world very strange quite exotic um, their problems and priorities were in a, of an entirely different order to most people's, um, to the extent that they sometimes appear kind of borderline mad. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what, what sort of things helped you understand them better? Oh, well, I think a good knowledge of mad people in general. <laughs> um, definitely, again, as I say, you know, reading their diaries and so on, you do get a sense of the madness. I think definitely the number one maddest Thing that's really accessible is Diana Vreeland's book DV. I mean, it is just one long, endless, punctuationless ramble of, you know, it's like playing a word association game. It's just nuts. Um, and you get a sense of like what kind of cacophony was going on in her mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think if you, again, general knowledge as a child I read tons of stuff about duchesses and princesses and I was one of those really annoying girls um, <laughs> so kind of uh, a general knowledge of etiquette and um, rules and manners was actually really helpful especially for early vogue in America because the Americans were really snobby and they had really set rules for their social class mm -hmm. um, and actually a lot of it is stuff that you know, if if you read any of that stuff as a kid, will you know you'll remember it. Um, yes, I mean we just kind of we presumably bring so many assumptions of today to looking at you know magazines or th things from the past. You know, I don't know if you sat down and read a hundred years of U.S. Vogue and or British Vogue. Read Paris, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but even things like um, you know uh, women wearing lipstick or women smoking, these are things that you know people could get quite um indignant about say in the yeah. in the 20s uh, it was quite well, outrageous much more simple things women riding a bicycle was beyond <laughs> i mean people campaigned in london to stop women on bicycles and made fun of them absolutely everywhere they could 
um yeah I mean that's women who are teachers that got a big laugh for a while (laughs) (laughs) so yeah there was all sorts so if you're a teacher you were bound to have a mustache I remember seeing that cartoon somewhere Um, (laughs) so yeah there's um But I do, I just think the more general knowledge you have, the more, the easier you can navigate because you can write anything by researching it minutely, but it's Mm -hmm. really whether you have the time. (laughs) Right. Well, that's interesting because then your third rule, which is perhaps the sort of uh, um, uh, a rule of uh, how you wish things had been, you say, don't rush. A long pause allows for inspiration to strike. So what, what did you, when you did get a long pause, what did you do in your long pause? Anything that wasn't work related, but this Ed is the beauty of hindsight. This rule, <laughs> um, because you know what, I was listening to um, some of your other podcasts, and one of them, I think, was one of the first ones with um, Jean Baptiste Andrea, mm-hmm. and he says, and you discuss how many words to write, five hundred words a day. I was thinking, God, what a luxury! Because at some point, I was drafting between two thousand and four thousand words a day for this wow. book. So um I'm not saying all of it was good immediately, but that's the kind of pace that I had to work at. <laughs> um so so yeah, and I think actually in writing it really serves you um to kind of take a break because you get stuck in either plot or you know uh, wondering how to structure something, especially something as big and unwieldy as history because you have to keep focus um, in the story. So definitely, you know, anything from going and doing something completely different, like DIY or going out to a restaurant, you know, I think that ideas come better when you let them breathe. Right. I mean, one of the things I think I'd have needed to meditate quite hard about is how there's something there's something quite mysterious about Vogue, isn't there, and how it pulls off this trick of great loftiness and authority. You know, it feels so important that it should almost have a, you know, seat at the United Nations. But that, but when you look through it, uh, it, you can sometimes wonder, well, where's the where's the substance? You know, how do they pull this fantastic trick uh, off? Do you think it's called the tyranny of the status quo? <laughs> they kind of um, got a big position very quickly because uh, when it started, it was connected to a lot of important people. Those people died, but the kind of reputation they sort of passed it on. To, mm-hmm. I always say like Vogue is infused with several people's, you know, reputation that have long since passed. Um, and that kind of continues. Um, and then, you know, as soon as you're big, uh, you can start doing a lot of things. You can leave people out. You can be rude or cunning or calculating or mysterious. Um, you can plot. <laughs> um, you can get a lot of attention. And the other thing is that you can align yourself with other organizations that have a lot of authority. So Vogue actually aligns itself very often with governments, um, which is why you think of it as so big that it could be in United Nations. The truth is that if you go through newspapers talking about Vogue, you will find very often that Vogue makes comments or appears in relation to certain things happening in politics, mm-hmm. uh, where its place is not, right? <laughs> so that's, you know, that kind of thing is quite is quite significant. Okay. Um, Good. Now, yeah. number, your rule, your fourth rule, you say, get offline. The internet is not the only tool out there. Now, this is shocking news to me. What, what else is there? 
Well, I think that people really want to do everything online now. And I find that unbearable. And I'm always trying to remind people that uh, basically everything good is not online. <laughs> online, <laughs> the internet is sort of a bit of a tool, a bit of a shortcut. I don't, it's not not only not the be all and end all, it's so minor in what you can do. Um, and I don't really think it will help you write better. So that's one thing I'll say. But of course, libraries, archives, um, letters, diaries, uh, most of the stuff is never going to be online. And you mm -hmm. can't find out about it online either. So if you go to a library and you're looking for a book by someone, they could have written 10 other books that have been out of print since the 20s. And those books probably won't even be there if you Google them. Google right. doesn't actually have everything on it. Um, it just has some stuff on it that people are interested in. The world is really big and it's existed for a long time, right? So mm -hmm. and especially if you want to write about something that other people haven't heard, that means it's probably not going to be on the internet. It's going to be somewhere that you have to dig it out and get covered in dust and, <laughs> you know, right. um, journey for ages to get to some of these research centers. I actually didn't get to half as many as I wanted to um, because a lot of the stuff I had lined up around the time coronavirus first started surfacing mm -hmm. so things were sort of closing early 2020 just as I was trying to get to them um so that was a real shame but the other thing of course is talking to people and people are not necessarily online either so a lot of the people that I wanted to speak to were really old or really cool or really rich or really important. <laughs> and that's kind of a subsect of people who are also not online. Mm -hmm. um, you have to ask them to pass on each other's numbers and they sort of do a, well, let's see. <laughs> I've got an address book somewhere. <laughs> um, Very old and school. That, yes, yeah. And some things are just completely unexpected. Like um, one of the biggest interviews that I do actually feature in the book was with a French editor. Um, and I'm really grateful to her because she was very supportive. And, uh, you know, she lives in rural Portugal on a huge, beautiful estate. And even though she was like, a, you know, a really well-known journalist in France, she's now old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to find her. I thought I was just going to call up the newspaper she used to work at or the channel, TV channel, and be like, hey, what's she doing now? But nobody's heard of her, you know. Right. She vanished <laughs> into the countryside. Exactly. How do you dig up these people? And, and one of, I mean, one of the aspects of Vogue that people are most eager to know about, I'm sure, is Anna Wintour. You know, there are a few more mythical individuals in the in Western society today. I feel, and even though she's photographed a lot, she gives no glimpses of her private life. She never shares her thoughts. She is as much a cipher as the Queen. You know, she's like a recluse in plain sight, isn't she? We can see yeah. her, but we know nothing about her. How did you? approach this problem yeah it was a really big problem to be honest um and then also a lot of the things that people do tell you um you can't use right so bits of gossipy information that people are like oh we were neighbors in new york and this happens and this happened you can't necessarily include that because mm -hmm. of libel and you know um so, so that made it really tricky. I, I did play it a little bit safe with Anna Winter. I mostly wrote about things that had been written about before, um, but were not very well known. Um, so that was just sort of digging through other things that people have said about her because the risk is quite high when you're dealing with Anna Winter. Um, 
so yeah, I guess that's another interesting thing, right? Because that you approach every editor in a kind of different way depending on the situation. And probably the way I wrote about Anna Winter is not the way I wrote about other editors. And so like everything in history, um, it's kind of an account on my judgment, isn't it? Right. I mean, the, the, it's, it's a book which is still full of um, sort of magnificent sort of gossipy anecdotes, though. I mean, I really liked the... Um, some of these stories that you told about Condé Nast and his sort of early days uh, running the magazine, you know, the, the, the extent of his socialising, this almost forensic socialising, had a whole team yeah. of secretaries to sort of monitor his, who he'd been to dinner with and who was who and who sat where and this kind of thing. And then this story about the baths, the two baths that he kept in order to, you know, one sizzling hot, the other one freezing cold, and he would jump out of one and into the other one just to energise himself and keep him awake to withstand this uh, schedule of of socialising that he'd he'd lined up for himself. You're the second person this week to ask me about the baths, actually, so that was obviously a really good thing to include. (laughs) Well, I do find myself thinking about it rather a lot because then I think, well, did he have two baths in one bathroom or did he have to go... You know, I can from tell you the upstairs exactly bounce. what the setup was. Oh, please do. <laughs> he would have a, beth- a bedroom with two adjoining bathrooms, one either side. So he'd have to go through the bedroom, presumably dripping wet, to get uh-huh. up one bath. To get okay. Mm. Okay. And and where did you find this? Was this in some, likewise, in some long out-of-print biography? or? Yes, this was in an account of a manager who had worked for British Vogue, uh yeah in the 30s as well uh 40s and I think he was there until the late 50s yeah um so so he was just doing one of these long rambling memoirs that are actually quite difficult to read but if you know who he's talking about it's quite interesting okay I also I really like the story of um French Vogue during the war and the Nazis desperately trying to get their hands on Paris Vogue so that they could show the world how German fashion was so much superior, so much more <laughs> superior to French fashion. And then when the French went to renew their license for all the paperwork or whatever it is they had to do, the person wielding the rubber stamp, you know, the person who said whether they could carry on in business or not was a photographer who they had turned down many times. That yeah. must have been. That must have really been embarrassing for the big representative who went his tail between his legs. Uh, Or maybe not. He probably went all hopeful. And then the door opened and there was this rejected photographer turned Nazi lieutenant to greet him. (laughs) And I think he really, he really got it handed to him. Um, People obviously were very reserved back in those days. So his account of that is quite uh, stayed <laughs> but okay. um I, I think he yeah he got a bit abused <laughs> okay and that and your fifth point your fifth rule is um is what's the point have a really good reason to be writing and I think you know I think that's a, that is a, something that people should always bear in mind whatever they're writing uh you know why am I doing this and who is it for but and but you know with Vogue you kind of think well what what is the point in that both sort of fashion and magazines are these kind of slightly flibberty gibbet things, you know, coloured fabric and coloured paper. What was your really good reason? Well, here's the thing. Again, this is another hindsight one. Um, I wanted to write about Vogue because I was obsessed with the stories of the editors. I thought it was so unusual. I thought it was so funny. And, you know, because they're such wacky characters, they do, you know, ridiculous things like, you know, Mm -hmm. the thing with the bath, but all of them are are like that. They've all got really distinct um, traits. And 
uh, I was so in love with this kind of cast, <laughs> this colourful cast, and I, I really wanted, and nobody had ever heard of them, and I really wanted to do them some kind of justice. Um, so I wanted to write this story kind of out of, you know, as a homage to them, mm-hmm. uh, and then out of pure curiosity, like you say, Vogue is so forbidding. And I was like, why? Why? <laughs> and uh, as a you know journalist and so on, I'm nosy. I'm nosy to the point of you know getting myself into trouble. And um, I kind of wanted to unpick that as well. And I also you know I knew kind of my whole life I wanted to write books. This is just the project that came up. Um, it's not the first book I've tried to write. It's the first one that got picked up. Um, so here I was, and then I realized. As I was doing it, especially towards the end and now kind of taking a step back, I realize it has to be so clear while you're writing. Very few writing writers or books become bestsellers. Um, You know, we all know, and I don't think I'm revealing any secrets here, that writing doesn't pay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's not a job in the sense of you'll actually be able to buy food. Um, so you can't do it for the obvious reasons. Uh, you also need so much time to do it. So I guess something like this book would make a lot of sense if I was a research lecturer in a really important fashion course, mm-hmm. or I was a curator at the, you know, at the V&A's costume department, that sort of thing. It would be kind of a feather to my cap. Um, but as who I am, um, I think I will need to really think carefully about how to position myself to continue doing the things I want to do and whether or not they fit together because okay. it's really important I kind of want a career out of writing and uh, <laughs> you need to be a bit organized about things like that yes yes well as you say you know food does become a luxury and uh, um, <laughs> that's the fact of life but having lived with this cast of characters that you mentioned who really stands out for you as particularly admirable I absolutely love Dorothy Todd, who was the editor in the 1920s in Britain. Um, She was short-lived, but I think she was fabulous. Um, She was kind of a really promiscuous lesbian who seduced her own secretary, made her leave her husband, and they lived together in kind of flagrant sin, as it was then termed. So I think she was really bold just for doing that alone. Um, I think she was also so intellectual, so scholarly, funny uh those are all qualities I admire and mm-hmm. she took a real risk with Vogue I think it takes such guts to be put in charge of something big and important she also really needed that job you know she wasn't just doing it for fun um so to take that and still turn it into something for the benefit of women which is what she did she could have just published what the Americans were giving her to publish instead she decided to open Vogue up and make it she called it um she wanted to do expose women to fashion and thinking as well as fashion and clothes and women didn't have anything to educate them at the time so this was really really important um so I kind of admire her for her brave effort even though it crashed and burned um and I think she was dealt a really raw hand because she was betrayed by a lot of people like Virginia Woolf who she paid a lot of money to and promoted a lot so kind of a sad story um, what what form did that betrayal take well, Virginia Woolf says some really disgusting things about it. So Virginia Woolf famously wanted always to earn money for her writing. Fair enough. I know the feeling. <laughs> but uh, and Dorothy Todd was really the only person paying her 
any kind of good money. Mm-hmm. And she would suck up to Dorothy Todd terribly. And then when Dorothy Todd got in trouble and was about to leave Vogue and then kicked out of Vogue, Virginia Woolf started saying horrible things about her, some of which I remember. She said she's like an extinct monster pushing through the mud. She said she's like a slug with a gash of lipstick. (laughs) Steady on, Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) And she just kept going and going and going. She's a badger. She's a beaver. I mean, there were some really nasty. And she was putting this in letters to everyone she could get hold of. So I don't respect Virginia Woolf anymore. (laughs) No, no, quite. And that's the kind of thing that people can, um, you know, expect to find in this uh, fabulous book. It's called Glossy, The Inside Story of Vogue by Nina Sophia Marais. It's published by Quercus. And if you do one thing today, it should be to buy this book. Nina Sophia, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks so much, Ed. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. 